Hey, everybody. You're listening to the Legacy Church Podcast. Legacy Church is a multi-generational church that exists to worship God, become like Jesus, and bring hope to our community. Today, we're sharing a message from our current series. We believe that the Word of God is powerful and has real-life application to our lives today. We hope that this message encourages you. Get connected and learn more about us by visiting our website at lgcy.church. Good morning. I just, uh, I just thanked um, Pastor H for making me cry to start it off. That's always a good way to start. I'm already a crier, so sorry. Um, I am, I don't know if I can express to you how much I love your church. We have been, shoot, we have been friends um, with Pastors Matt and Rach and with your church family for a good 15 years now. And we have had the privilege of walking together and encouraging one another, loving one another, and walking through the hard stuff together. And I just need you to know I love you very much. And I am so honored that I... um, Get to be here this morning. Uh, Pastor Rach was just saying that my husband, Brett, he is with uh, Pastor Matt in Kitchener this morning. And uh, we actually brought our boys this trip, which is a first, um, which is really exciting. We have two boys, Everett and Kingston. They are eight and 10 years old. And we went to Dude Perfect last night, which is amazing um, and so much fun. And so we, uh, we were dividing and conquering this morning. So Everett went with, with uh, my husband and Kingston is here and kids. And um, yeah, I'm just really thankful for all of you and for this, this house and this family. And Pastor Rach, I have to tell you that you don't know why you said what you said this morning, but I do. And I love it when a plan comes together. I love it when the Holy Spirit weaves things together because he knows stuff that we don't know. And it's really fun to watch how he does that weaving. Um, this morning, we're going to kind of jump into two portions of scripture, uh, Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 26. So if you have your Bibles or you have your uh, version app, feel free to jump there. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 to 13, and this will probably be familiar to you, potentially. You might even have this one memorized, Matthew 6, 9 to 13. And uh, I'm going to read out of the New King James Version just for this, because it's what most of us memorized it out of. Um, Yeah. Okay, let's start here. It says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And if you want to pray, if you want to say this with me, feel free. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
This is a phrase that I have been camped on for the last number of months. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't get it out of my spirit. It's just sort of wedged itself in there. And um, back in March, we were in one of our worship services at home. And all of a sudden, I just had this phrase enter my mind. And it was this. It was simply demonstration of the kingdom. Demonstration of the kingdom. Well, God, what does that mean? Demonstration of the kingdom. And Pastor Rach was talking about signs and wonders and miracles and God moving and things happening and, and living in an acts time frame now. What does that look like? And how do we get there? How do we get there? Because I don't know about you, I want to see his kingdom come and his will be done. I want to see it. I want to see it. But do we really know or understand what it takes to have his kingdom come and his will be done here? I don't know if we do. I don't know if we do. One of my favorite pastors, authors, leaders, Pastor Daryl Johnson, if you haven't heard of him, look him up. He's amazing. He's like the most amazing grandpa that you've never met, but you feel like he's your grandpa and you know that he loves you even if he doesn't know you. And his books are phenomenal, so I highly recommend it. But one of the books he's written is called 57 Words That Changed the World. And in this book, he talks about this particular um, portion of the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says this, he says, we are asking God to do what only God can do. The prayer is not let us do your will on earth as it is in heaven. This is not a bad thing to pray, not at all. But it is not what Jesus is teaching us in this prayer. The prayer is not even give us power, O oh God, so we can do your will. The prayer is not even do a miracle in our fearful and rebellious hearts so that we will wanna do your will. The prayer is, Father, you do your will. The verb, okay, for all of you grammar people, the verb is in the imperative, do it. The verb is in the passive imperative, implying only you can do it. Only God can do it. It's not our power. It's not our doing. But how many of you know we try to do that? Sometimes we get so weighed down and we get so overwhelmed and we get so frustrated because we're not seeing something because we're trying to do it ourselves and forgetting that only he can do it. And if that's the case, then it begs the question, what is my role in all of this? What is my role? I can tell you uh, what a lot of people do. They pray this prayer. It becomes just something that you pray without even thinking sometimes, right? You've got it memorized. And then they sit back and they wait and they say, okay, God, you do it. I asked you. Now I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to watch while you do it. That's not how it works. Sorry to burst your bubble. That's not how it works. 
The life of a believer is not a spectator sport. We don't sit back and watch. We're created to participate with God. So that means we have a role to play. Just to clarify, we do have a role to play. But what does it look like? And I'm going to propose to you that I think Jesus very beautifully modeled it for us. And while it might seem to you incredibly simple, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that it is absolutely necessary in order for us to see his kingdom come and his will be done. So I'm going to get you to turn to Matthew 26 now. We're going to jump to Matthew 26, 36 to 46. And this is a portion of scripture where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is leading up to what will be the crucifixion. And he knows what's coming. And he takes the time to go to the garden and he takes the disciples with him. And this is what it says, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, And he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Side note, in case you were wondering, the title of this message is Not Mine. It's not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away, unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Okay, so I have been uh, on a bit of a garden kick recently, actually the last number of years. But when I say that, um, I am not talking about a physical garden. I am not a gardener, not in any way, shape, or form. I do not have a green thumb, and it is actually a miracle when anything stays alive inside of my home, let alone outside of my home, okay? But I have been, for the last number of years, drawn to the idea of the garden, and the Lord has taken me on this beautiful journey through Scripture, not the real garden, but through Scripture, about the significance of the garden. Warren Wearsby says this, human history began in a garden and so did human sin. For the redeemed, the whole story will climax in a garden city where there will be no sin. But between the garden where man failed and the garden where God reigns, or where God reigns is Gethsemane right in the middle. 
the garden where Jesus accepted the cup from the Father's hand. What I love about the idea of the garden and what I've just been seeing over and over is that the garden keeps showing up. The Garden of Eden, the place that began with beautiful intimacy and purpose that ended with the irresistible tree. The Garden City, spoken of uh, in Revelation 22, 1 to 5, go read it, it's really cool. It describes the eternal city and the description is actually very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. And smack in the middle was the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus frequented, where he retreated for quiet, for rest and to pray and commune with the Father. He, freaked, he frequented that, that place and that space so much that Judas knew exactly where to go exactly where to go when he was going to betray him. The garden is where Jesus was confronted by evil and did what Adam couldn't. He chose submission and obedience. He chose the father's will over his own. And just as a bonus, because I've been studying all this, there's actually another garden. In case you want to know, John 19, 41 says this, the place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they lead Jesus there. Isn't it interesting that the place where Jesus was laid and where he rose from the dead was in a tomb in a garden? There is a significance and an importance to the idea of the garden. Things happened in the garden all throughout scripture. Because the garden is representative of the place of intimacy and communion with God. A place of rest. How many need some rest? A place of rest, peace, reprieve. It's a place where Jesus went often. It's the place where God resurrects things. Amen? In Genesis, the garden was where God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. How amazing does that sound? He frequented and they knew him there. And where did Jesus continually retreat to be alone with his father? In the garden. Gethsemane is where he would often go. When Jesus was spent and tired, needing peace, needing to rest and to recharge, he went to the garden to be alone with the father. This is the first step, okay, you got to follow along with me here. This is the first step in a model that I believe Jesus lays out for us here in Matthew 26. To walk out our role in seeing his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Step number one is get back to the garden. Get back to the garden. Keep going back. The garden is home base. The garden is where he instructs us, where he prepares us, where he rests us. Okay, I'm not a huge baseball person. My husband is, and he'd probably be very embarrassed that I'd even be bringing this up um, because I really don't know much. But listen, the garden is home base. And we know, I know enough to know that's where you want to get to, right? You're on the bench, you get your instructions, you get rested, you go out, you run the play, whatever it is, but you're trying to get back home. The garden is home base. 
like Jesus, when we are spent and tired and needing peace and rest and to recharge, when we're overwhelmed by life, hello, the last three years, facing trouble or worry or temptation, we need to get back to the garden. We need to go be alone with the Father. This is more important than we will ever, I think, realize. This is the fundamental beginning. This is actually what we were created for. We were created for intimacy with the Father and to worship him. That's, that's primary. Everything else is secondary. So we're called to get back to the garden. And I think we know it, but we, we know it. But we don't always know it. As we keep going here, you're going to see why this is so important as the fundamental base to his kingdom coming and his will being done here. Get back to the garden. Keep going back. Okay. Step number two. When Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, he asks the disciples to do a couple of things. In verse 38, what does he ask them to do? Verse 38, take a look. What does he ask them to do? He says, keep watch, keep watch, get back to the garden, keep watch. Actually, three times Jesus asked the disciples to keep watch. And the word watch here is a verb that has a few meanings. It means to be alert. It means to be awake and to be alive. Be alert and keep watch. It actually says that a lot in scripture. Ephesians 6.18 says, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.6, so be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. 1 Corinthians 16.13, be on guard. Stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Listen, in Gethsemane, in Gethsemane, the disciples, they just kept falling asleep. And sometimes we think, wow, like why couldn't they just stay awake? They've been with Jesus for three years. He asked them to do something. It's actually like the one thing he really asked them to do for him. And they just kept falling asleep. They couldn't stay awake. In Luke's gospel account, it says they were exhausted from grief. Have you ever been exhausted from grief? They couldn't keep their eyes open. See, here they fell asleep physically from being grieved, exhausted, and overwhelmed. But how easy is it for us to fall asleep spiritually? You were, you were talking about waking up. I think we have a whole lot of believers and a whole lot of churches that are sleeping right now. They have been lulled to sleep out of grief and pain and frustration and exhaustion and fatigue over the last three years. And we have been lulled to sleep. And it's time to wake up. 
and keep watch. Because we are, we are not about to risk losing ground because we're asleep. First Peter 5.8 says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I think we often make assumptions about what devouring looks like. We think it's this like massive thing that's gonna happen and, and we're, we're all good. We haven't been devoured. We still love Jesus. We still go to church. We're good. He's not devouring anything. All it takes is closing your eyes and you've been devoured. You've been slowed down. Falling asleep to what God is doing, to what he wants to do. Listen, you can be in the garden and you can still fall asleep. John 10, 10 says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. In this case, very specifically, the word destroy means to render useless. Now, scripturally, what you need to know is the thief here, I mean, we've heard this before, is not specifically referring to the devil, but rather the leadership in Israel that opposed Jesus. But who do you think was moving on them? What spiritual force was intent to get them? Who do you think was causing the issues? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness and spiritual wickedness. It is always, listen to me, it is always the goal of the enemy to render you useless. And sometimes all it takes is finding a way to help us get tired and fall asleep. We're pretty useless if we're asleep when the attack comes. We're pretty useless if we're asleep and God wants to move. We're pretty useless if we're asleep and God wants to do something new. We're pretty useless if we're asleep and God wants revival. Jesus said, keep watch with me. So you are not alone in your watching. He was keeping watch too. He knew what would come after him? He'd been there before. He'd been tempted before in the desert. He knows what it looks like. He knew you had to keep watch. You had to stay alert. He went continually to the garden and he went there to be with the father and he kept watch for the prowling lion always ready to try and take him out. He knew exactly what was going on, who was coming, what was coming. Let me ask you this. Do we as a church know who's coming, what's coming, and are we ready for it? Or are we too asleep to see what we cannot see? Can we see beyond the natural to see what's coming? Are we alert enough? Are we watching? Are we taking a nap? Stay awake, keep watch. Now, three times Jesus leaves the disciples in the garden and each time he says to them, keep watch. But he doesn't leave it there. He ties it together with something else. What does he say? He says, keep watch and 
Pray. Pray. That's number three. Pray. So simple. Get to the garden. Keep watch. Pray. Why three times? Do you know, did, did it ever stick out to you that he went three times? Like, why didn't he just go and stay there the whole time? Why did he keep coming back and going again three times? Three is a sign of wholeness and completeness. Meaning this is important. Pay attention. He asked the disciples to keep watch and pray so that. Means there's a purpose to the keeping watch and the praying. And sometimes we forget that there is purpose in our prayer. And we downplay the necessity of prayer. It says, pray so that. Pray so that you aren't tempted to step away from the plans and purposes of God. Remember, his kingdom come, his will be done. Jesus was face to face with the temptation to give in. And he knew. You don't think he was tempted? (sighs) He knew what it would take to remain resolute in accomplishing the Father's will. Get back to the garden, keep watch, and pray if he needed it, and he told his disciples they needed it, how much more do we need it? Jesus knew he needed to talk to the Father. He needed to pour out his heart before God. Psalm 62, 8, one of my favorite scriptures that talks about pouring out your heart to God because he is a safe place. You know you can pour out your heart to him. He's okay with that. He's not afraid of it. Commune with him. In Luke's gospel account, actually, we also learned that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened Jesus when he went to pray. You know what he did? You know what that strengthening was for? It wasn't to go do the will. It was to pray more. It says, an angel appeared and strengthened him and he prayed more fervently. The strength was for the prayer. He was strengthened not necessarily to do the job but to pray more. I don't know about you, but I still often forget and I downplay and the enemy loves this, the power of prayer. I think it's Louis Giglio who says, if only we knew what was happening when we pray, we would never cease to pray, to stop. We would never cease. If only we knew there is more going on than meets the eye. What you see right here is not all that there is. And we forget that. We forget that. There is a realm that exists beyond what we can see with the natural eye, where things actually shift and move when we pray. They do. I would suggest that's why scripture says in Ephesians 6, 18, to pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Oh, and here it is again. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 is even more direct. It says, never stop praying. Just never stop. Why? Because it matters. 
because it makes a difference because things shift and move and change and atmospheres change. Hearts shift. Listen, I've walked, okay, just an aside, um, parents in the room, if you have kids that are struggling with things and you see them struggling with these things and it causes fear to well up in you and you don't know what to do and there's anxiety and, oh, they're, they're reading this and they're seeing this and they're acting like this or they're being influenced like this, can I tell you, would you just pray? I have watched it happen with my own kids. There have been things that each of them have wrestled with, particularly like over the last year. And the fear that has welled up in my heart for them would be enough to take you out. It's enough to distract you. It's enough to pull you out of your game. It's, it's ter- honestly, it's kind of terrifying right now if you, if you let it, if you really think about it. Here's the thing. I'm telling you, prayer and specifically praying scripture over them will change them. And it will change circumstances around them. One of my favorite things to pray over them is, God, would you cause them, this is scripture, would you cause them to will and to do according to your good pleasure? Meaning, would you cause them to want to do it? And would you give them the power to do it according to what you want? And I have literally watched the things that I have been so fearful of slowly start to shift without me even saying a word. Prayer matters. Now, it's also important to note in Gethsemane how Jesus prayed. Scripture says he got down with his face to the ground, a posture of complete surrender. For him, it was literal, face to the ground. And while I think that is something that we can consider, I don't think the whole point is you know, get down on the ground with your face, okay? I think the whole point of this is this is a sign of complete surrender and a verbal acknowledgement. He says, "My, not my will, but yours. We are, as humans, we are trichotomous beings. It's not a dinosaur. It's not a weird. It just means try three. We are made up of three parts, right? Body, soul, spirit. Complete surrender, complete surrender looks like all of me face down, body, soul, spirit. It's one thing to kneel down and surrender with your physical body, right? I can do this all day long. If my mind and my heart aren't there too, I'm lying to myself. I am not surrendered. It is body, soul, spirit. Means your thoughts, your opinions, your plans, all of it. And notice Warren Mearsby also says this. Note that Jesus did not tell the father what to do. Do you ever find yourself praying and telling God what to do? It's not necessarily intentional. I think sometimes we don't realize we're doing it, but this is the God of the universe and we're trying to tell him what to do. God, would you just, 
We don't, we don't tell God what to do. Now he is so gracious and so kind. He listens, he hears, but he's still sovereign. He may do it out of the goodness and faithfulness. And if it's in alignment with his will, he may do it. But then again, he might not. Jesus did not tell the Father what to do. He had perfect confidence in God's will. Three times he prayed about the matter and each time, each time he yielded to the Father's will in loving surrender. You notice that every time he prayed, he surrendered? I think sometimes that's what we're missing. I know that's what I'm missing. When I go to prayer, when, I, when I'm talking to the Lord, am I surrendering every single time that I'm talking to him? <sighs> Probably not. Prayer is meant to get us to a place of surrender. It's part of the necessity. Which brings us to step four, which is surrender. Sometimes I think we underestimate how difficult it was for Jesus to surrender his will in the garden. He was in anguish. He was sweating drops like blood. He was alone. Even his disciples couldn't, couldn't, couldn't support him. He had nobody. You been there? Where you're anguishing and you have nobody? Where it feels like you have nobody? And I wonder, I've been thinking about this. I wonder if perhaps he actually had a double wrestle because he had to wrestle with both his humanity and his divinity. Humanity that says, this is a body. I, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't wanna do this. And a divinity that says, I don't have to do this. I have the host of heaven at my disposal. I don't have to do this. He wrestled, he wrestled through the temptation. Listen, when you are wrestling through, through things, know that he understands the wrestle. He gets it. Now go back to the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they were not able to withstand the temptation of choosing their own will over God's. They chose their own way. They did not wrestle. I was thinking about this. They were in the garden. They got step one, but he, that's because he put them there. So that's sort of like, they didn't have a choice. They were there. But when the enemy came to tempt them, were they aware? Were they keeping watch? Did they recognize who this was and what was happening? They weren't afraid of him. They weren't even put off by him. There wasn't even a questioning of him. They didn't keep watch. And they didn't, to the equivalent of us, they didn't pray. When the enemy came to talk to them, did they take that information that he presented and go back to the father who loved to walk and talk with them in the cool of the day and say, God, this thing said, I don't even know if they knew what it was. This thing said this, is it true? What do I need to know? Do I need to know, does this matter? 
What is this? They didn't even go. They short-circuited their ability to allow God's will through them. And so they could not surrender. John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will, not mine, yours. And listen, we live in a culture that is all about what's mine. My life, my truth, my opinion, my comfort. You want to know what a countercultural church, Bible believing church, Jesus following church looks like? Not mine. Not my will, yours. Listen. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So that implies it's being done in heaven, right? Why do things get done in heaven? It's because the host of angels are completely surrendered and submitted to the will of God. God speaks, they move. God speaks, things happen. God speaks, things get done. Psalm 103, 20 to 21 says, Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. They do it. They have no choice. It's how they're designed. We have a choice. So did Jesus. So again, I say, what does your kingdom come, your will be done look like for us? What is our role? Our role is continually getting back to the, the place of complete and total surrender to his will. So that when he speaks, we move. When he speaks, things happen. When he speaks, things get done. How do we continually get back to that place of complete surrender? Get back to the garden. Keep going back to home base. Keep getting your instructions. Get your rest. Be filled up. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. Keep watch. See what's going on around you. Ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and discernment to see what's going on around you. Pray, 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 pray so that you can surrender. You just put that on repeat. There's over and over and over and over. I don't know where you're at today, but I felt very specifically, and this is sort of what aligned with what Pastor Rach was talking about. 
but I feel like I'm specifically called to speak to those who right now feel like they've been asleep. You have been wounded, you have been broken, you have been disappointed, you are overwhelmed by life and situations of life and you are exhausted and you have shut down and you're just on autopilot. You're just tired and you're asleep. And God is saying, okay, I see it. I know it. If you would come back to the garden, let me fill you. Let me speak to you. Let me encourage you. Let me build you back up because it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. We have a revival night tonight. Do you ever think about what it means to revive? Wake up. It's time for the church to wake up. We have been sleeping too long. But it starts with total surrender. Listen, oftentimes, I don't know about you, but oftentimes my fatigue, my exhaustion, my feeling overwhelmed comes because I have not surrendered the things that are holding me down. I'm trying to do it on my own, figure it all out, figure situations out. Listen, God is the God who spoke things into existence. He is infinitely creative. You need an answer, he's got one. You need a way out, he's got one. You don't have to figure it out, but you have to go back to the one who can. So that you don't have to stay asleep. It's time to wake up. It's time for you to wake up. Why don't you stand? I just want to do a couple of things here. First thing is this. We're talking about surrender, surrendering our whole lives, body, soul, spirit, every part of who we are to the God of the universe who holds the entire world in his hands. And he is good and he is kind and he is faithful without fault. And he loves you to death. And if you are in this room, and you have not yet submitted your life, if you have not surrendered your life, your heart, every part of you to Jesus, I will not miss an opportunity to allow you to do that. So if everyone would just bow your heads, close your eyes, because this is not about a spectacle. This is between you and Jesus. If you have not made that decision yet to follow Jesus, but in your heart, you know something is missing and there is something stirring in there that you can't explain and you can't get away from and it just keeps stirring. 
That's Jesus trying to get your attention in any way that he can because he just wants you and your heart as he wants what's best for you and he has a plan and a purpose for you and your life. And so if that's you, I just want you to take a brave step and I just want you to slip up your hand right now. Nobody else is looking. Nobody's watching. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. I see your hand. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you the opportunity to invite Jesus into your life right now. His word is so simple. It's so simple. His word says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's it. You say it, you believe it, that's it. So what we're gonna do together as a family is we're gonna pray all together because this is a family and we do things together because you are not alone and you will not be alone. And he loves you enough to put people around you who will love you and support you and walk with you and encourage you. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna get you, we're gonna pray and I'm gonna get you to repeat after me, the entire church, so that these individuals who raise their hands can make that decision. We're gonna say this. Dear Jesus, I need you now more than ever. So I surrender everything, all of me, my wins and my losses, my sins and my successes. They're all yours. Forgive me of my sins and of going my own way. Today, I choose you and I'm gonna follow you one step at a time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on our website at lgcy.church.